Coming up, a companion to one of the best horror novels of all time. A mystery series starring a very unlikely detective. Plus, our distraction of the week. I'm Mel. I'm Dave. This is the Library of Lost Time. Shirley Jackson's novel, The Haunting of Hill House, is arguably one of the best horror novels ever written. Yeah. It was published in 1959, and it pretty much set the modern standard for haunted house stories. Joe Hill, that's Stephen King's son, said that Shirley Jackson was the first author to understand that houses aren't haunted, people are. That's one of my favorite tropes. Yeah. But I have a complex relationship with The Haunting of Hill House. Okay. The way she's created an atmosphere of dread is brilliant. Yeah. I was transported directly into that terrible, grasping, hungry house alongside characters that are believable and distinctly unlikable and kind of unreliable. The whole time, you're not really sure if you should trust their recollection of their experiences and what they're saying to each other and to themselves. Right. Who in this book is telling the truth and what is the truth really? Yes. Which is very appropriate for what she's doing there. Exactly. So given all of that, I feel like I should love this book. Mm. I hold it at arm's length. I don't feel like I ever want or need to reread it. Okay. So you admire the book, but it hasn't caught your heart. Yes, because it's a little too bleak and grim. Yeah. I wanted there to be more gleefulness in the horror. In our last episode, I talked about Black River Orchard by Chuck Wendig. Right. That made me laugh with delight when terrible things were happening. Right. The Haunting of Hill House just kind of makes me feel bad. Yeah, I think there's a personal choice there about what kind of horror you might enjoy, right? Yes. Some people do like the very dark stuff, Mm -hmm. the bleakness of it all, Mm -hmm. and other people like a little bit more. It's horrible, but it's manageable somehow. Yeah. Yeah. Having said all of that, there is now a version of Hill House that I enjoyed quite a bit. It's a new book written by the author Elizabeth Hand. I know Elizabeth Hand. I talked about her for our amusement park episode. She wrote Curious Toys. That's sort of a mystery set in an amusement park circus in Chicago in the early 1900s. Lovely book. We've gotten good feedback from our audience on that book, too. A bunch of people took your recommendation and really liked it. So that's Elizabeth Hand. She is the first author approved by Shirley Jackson's family to write an authorized novel based on Shirley Jackson's work. Wow. Yes. That's quite an honor. Yeah. And I would think it'd be very intimidating (laughs) to walk in those footsteps. Her book is called A Haunting on the Hill, and it's a sequel to the original with Hill House, the haunted mansion, exerting its evil influence on a new set of characters. It's unsettling and tingly and a really, really good ride. I had fun reading this haunted house story while also keeping the lights on and kind of turning my head to see the things that were happening in the corner of my eye. Right. You know that feeling? Yeah. For me, this book is the ideal balance of terror and entertainment. And the setup is so good. A group of actors temporarily move into Hill House because they're rehearsing a modernist staging of a 17th century play about an infamous witch. (laughs) 
I mean, why not practice your spooky play in a haunted house? Sure. What could possibly go wrong? Right. <laughs> the small cast of actors is very dramatic. They're a cocktail of narcissism, insecurity, and artistry. They know what they're doing. They're good actors. I rooted for them, even while I was rolling my eyes at them behaving like divas. Yeah. And not seeing what was going on around them. Yeah. Because they were too wrapped up in their own stuff. Elizabeth Hand does a perfect job of slowly having the characters unravel so their normal versions of themselves and the haunted people they become at Hill House kind of toggle back and forth for a while until the characters are completely unsure of who they are. Like they are just not on stable footing anymore. I really like reading horror, but sometimes supernatural stuff on the page is kind of hard to visualize. I feel like I'm not necessarily seeing what the author was imagining. Right. Han's descriptions of the hauntings are so good. Like, they're completely fantastical. But somehow, what she's describing makes sense. And I could see it perfectly clearly. I could hear it. I could feel the wind. Like, everything the characters were experiencing, I was in it. And it was deliciously awful. That's about the highest recommendation I can give for a horror novel. Yeah. So this is A Haunting on the Hill by Elizabeth Hand. And if you haven't read Shirley Jackson's The Haunting of Hill House, you might want to give it a try. It is a classic. It is very well done. Yeah, the writing is so strong. It's amazing. She was definitely a witch, a word witch. Please don't haunt me, Shirley Jackson. S.J. Bennett is an author who's been exploring an intriguing idea for three books now. The idea is... What if Queen Elizabeth II was an amateur detective? <laughs> That's really cute. Yeah. The queen was bright and observant and curious. She'd have access to any expert in the world. She knew the state's secrets. And she was famously discreet, right? People would tell her things they might not tell other people. And she couldn't do her own footwork, of course, but she'd have others for that. But, you know, what if? <laughs> So the author, S.J. Bennett, had this idea, and then she decided to make it as faithful to the truth as possible. So she set her stories in places where the queen would have been and populated the books with other members of the royal house, and she wrote cozies that married together mystery and nonfiction. Neat. Yeah. The first is called The Windsor Knot. A guest at Windsor Castle is murdered. He's strangled with a dressing gown cord. The second is A Three-Dog Problem where a body is found in the Buckingham Palace swimming pool. And the latest just came out. It's called Murder Most Royal. It's a Christmas story. Oh, I just got really excited. <laughs> the royal family is gathering for the holiday at the Sandringham estate when a severed hand washes up on the beach. Ew. Yeah. And Elizabeth recognizes the hand from a signet ring. <laughs> and then we're off to the races. That sounds amazing. Yeah. The book has been out in the UK since August. The reviews have been very solid. The author Ruth Ware called the series The Crown Crossed with Miss Marple. <laughs> and it just came out in the States last week. It's Murder Most Royal by S.J. Bennett. If there's anything I like more than a comedy horror novel, it's a Christmas mystery. That just made my day. <laughs> and now our distraction of the week. I recently learned about the museum at FIT. FIT stands for the Fashion Institute of Technology. 
It's part of the State University of New York in Manhattan. Yeah. The museum's permanent collection includes 50,000 pieces of clothing, accessories, and textiles from the 18th century to the present. That's a lot of closets. I would really love to run around in their little archive there. Yeah. The museum has a permanent collection that's displayed on its main floor, and a big chunk of that is available online, and it's organized really nicely. So you can look at fashion from a particular decade or go deep into shoes. Sometimes when museums put their stuff online, it's hard to navigate. I really like the interface on this. Highly recommend it. A few times a year, the museum also puts on large-scale special exhibitions. Previous shows that they've done include The Dark Glamour of the Gothic, How Ballet Influences Modern Fashion, and an exhibit called A Queer History of Fashion from the Closet to the Catwalk. Those all sound awesome. There's so many good ones. There's one about corsets. There's one about clothes and rainbow colors. Any topic you can think of with fashion, they've probably done. Yeah. And all of those are also available in galleries online with photos and supporting information. Right now, the current show is food and fashion. It's an examination of two things we deal with every day, feeding ourselves and getting dressed. Yeah. The 90 pieces in the exhibit were chosen for their commentary on luxury, gender, consumerism, and body politics. There's a lot of smart thinking that went into putting this show together. But it's also really fun. All of the pieces in the food and fashion exhibit cover a wide range of emotions and styles. Some are really cute and colorful, and you would just be like, oh, look at that cute dress with the fried eggs on it. Adorable. Right. Others are stark and elegant, and some are definitely surreal. There's a kitschy purse that looks like a serving of McDonald's french fries in oh, the little cardboard box. Yep. There's a silk floor-length gown that's an enormous reproduction of the wrapper for a Hershey's chocolate bar. Okay. Both of those were designed by Jeremy Scott. He's the former creative director of the design house Moschino. And he said that with this collection, he took something trashy and made things to be treasured forever. Dolce & Gabbana, you might know them. They're Italian designers. Sure. They created a collection of dresses to celebrate Italian food and its popularity around the world. So they have frocks printed with giant pasta noodles and cans of tomato sauce and gelato and cannolis. Not everything is so over the top. Nigerian designer Nii Okoboyejo was inspired by jollof rice. Oh. You might remember I talked about jollof rice in our episode about Nigeria. Sure. It's practically the country's national dish. It's made with rice cooked in a spicy tomato sauce. Instead of illustrating the rice on his clothing, yeah. Okoboyejo built his aesthetic around tactile fabrics like corduroy and velour. So when you see them, you just want to touch them. Yeah. And the earthy colors of jollof rice. So the color palette is like deep chocolatey brown and a rich goldenrod and a warm orange. It's subtle and very luxurious looking, even though they're casual clothes and it they're things you would definitely want to wear. My favorite, which is not at all subtle, is a lady's hat from 1953 that looks like a layer cake with pink flowers on top. That's fun. The exhibit runs through November 26th. If you can't physically get to New York, there are a few options to consume this exhibition at home. I see what you did there. 
There's a really nice audio feature in a free app that includes select pieces from the show along with audio from the curators and the designers. I downloaded it and listened to all of it. It was really cool to hear the stories behind the fashion. There's also a gorgeous coffee table book called Food and Fashion. It's 320 pages of photos and essays that document the entire exhibit. The cover is a photo of a woman wearing a dress that looks like a three-layer wedding cake, and it's decorated with three-dimensional cherubs and roses. It kind of looks like one of those cakes that a dancer would jump out of at a stag party in the 1950s, only she's wearing it. I love (laughs) it so much. Visit strongsenseofplace.com slash library for more on the food and fashion exhibit and all the books we discussed today. Thanks for joining us in the Library of Lost Time. Remember to visit your local library and your independent bookstore to lose some time yourself. Stay curious. We'll talk to you soon. 